Welcome, everyone, to the Redeemer Radical Reflections from Reading Rightly, also known as the Five R's. Uh, my name is George Cagle, and I am joined by Ben Grimmy. Hey, George. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Awesome. Ben is uh, joining us. He has a, you know, he has a kind of a special place in my heart because he lent me, or didn't lend me, he gave me a commentary on Isaiah that uh, I have been using as we've been going through this. So um, a lot of the uh, stuff you've heard, at least from me, is stuff from the commentary, which we can thank Ben for. Um, so there you oh, go. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that was, that was useful. It's a great commentary. That's good. And uh, speaking of which, I did uh, recently, uh, earlier this week, uh, use it to examine these two chapters. We have Isaiah 28 and 29, which, uh, again, just like uh, previous chapters, really this first section of Isaiah, you know, kind of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there's a lot of judgment and woes, and we get plenty of that as well in uh, in these two chapters. But uh, Ben, I want to hear your, uh, what, were you, what are your initial thoughts and everything in, in regards to um, these two chapters? Well, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're two, two chapters, both of them really focused on judgment, one on Ephraim or the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and then the second chapter 29 on Jerusalem, um, the Southern right. Kingdom. Um, and both chapters start off with, um, you know, a description of the the sins of of each of those nations and and what God has promised against them, and then they end with you know the promise of salvation and hope, um, which is which is just a cool uh, just a cool way Isaiah has you know formatted a lot of these chapters. Is there's always judgment right. with hope, judgment with salvation. Right. Right. Well, good. Let's um, let's go ahead and get started. Let's move on in. So, first chapter, chapter twenty-eight. I noticed that, or it seems that uh, the commentary and stuff that I've been looking at uh, has said that you know, starting with chapter twenty-eight, is a lot of this is written during the reign of King Hezekiah whereas previous stuff was written during the reign of King Ahaz of Judah, which, you know, Hezekiah, he had, you know, he actually was a, was a good king, right? Faithful to the Lord and would try and do what uh, God commands and, and God's will. And it would seem like, oh, there's kind of a revival and repentance going on. Um but we can see from these chapters, right? Yeah, Northern Kingdom's not doing a good job. And in the Southern Kingdom as well, maybe Hezekiah is doing well, but um, the people themselves, right, are, are still, their hearts are still far from the Lord. And it seems like a lot of this has to do, a lot of their, their troubles have to do with drinking. Um, so if we look at chapter 28, verse 1, Right. Yeah. Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And this is the proud crown of the drunkards 
right? So there's these people are indulging in, in drink and earthly pleasures. They do have glorious beauty, right? Like the, the, the city of Samaria and their kingdom. They had a lot of potential. But obviously this is fading and it's going to go away very soon. Yeah, and it's a there's a really stark contrast here where God is putting the emphasis on himself as opposed to man, right? Because there's this theme throughout Isaiah of, of trusting in God, not in in man. And so, it, you know, the, it's, it's a fading flower of glorious beauty in verse 1. Um, and I think that's repeated again down in verse 4. And then a couple verses, the Lord, um, and we'll get to this, but the Lord is a... Yeah, the Lord's beauty is commented upon and it's uh, emphasized as well. So um, it's a really cool comparison that Isaiah gives. Right. And this judgment that's coming upon Ephraim, right? We have Assyria, which will conquer and destroy the northern kingdom and march those people off into exile. And, you know, they become, you know, the lost tribes of, of Israel. And it says right in verse two, here's, here's your prediction. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, right? This is Assyria. That's the, they're going to be a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, uh, mighty overflowing waters, right? This is just an overwhelming force that is going to swallow them up and do it quickly, right? In verse four, it says that the once glorious beauty of Ephraim, right? It's going to be like the first ripe fig before the summer, which apparently, you know, back then figs come much later, but you're walking by, you see this random uh, fig that's ready to be eaten. You, you grab it and you eat it. And that's exactly what Assyria is going to do, right? They're going to rapidly snatch, snatch them up. Yeah, and the uh, and the interesting thing too with that is that, you know, God, um, God is in control. He has all the nations' armies at His control, at His power. Um, and uh, in verse two, when He says He's the one who is mighty and strong, um, it's an emphasis on on God, whom they are not trusting in, um, and who they are blinded by their own their own trust in themselves and their leaders, but. But what they fail to see is that this judgment, this enemy that coming is, is not just a random enemy. It's it's God's judgment which He has ordained. Um, so He, you know, His sovereignty is is emphasized um, in these mm-hmm. first first several verses. And then in verse five, right here's here's the contrast. Also, right that you know. Previously, Ephraim had this fading flower of glorious beauty and, you know, the the crown of drunkards. But in verse five says, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Which, as I read, I, I, you know, interpreted as the folks who were remaining after the Assyrian conquest. Um. But this kind of, you know, talks about like, for example, uh, previously in Isaiah in chapter 10, verses 20 through 22, 
which also talk about a remnant for Israel and the Northern Kingdom and how right God removes a nation's pride and he, and he does this all the time especially with the uh, you know with Israel and Judah but or just with individual people in their lives you remove or he removes the nation's pride so that then they will turn to him yeah the um you know when you know it kind of emphasizes the um you know, the pattern of judgment and salvation I referred to, you know, before where God disciplines his people because of their sin. He pours out his wrath and judgment in order to break them. Um, and that breaking is designed to heal and save them, right? And reconcile them back to him, um, trying to reveal their sin and their pride. Mm-hmm. But it appears, right, that this remnant will still kind of commit the old sins of Samaria, right? Because in verse seven, it says these also. So I would say that the remnant in the Northern kingdom will reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. And then you have the political and spiritual leaders, right? The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink and they are swallowed by wine. So there's all these sins being committed you know, with the drinking and the partying and, you know, verse eight for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left, right? These people are completely unclean. And, and Isaiah just uses, right. Just this vulgar, this, uh, vulgar, um, intense imagery here to show the extent of these people's, sin yeah and and it's their sin that that blinds them too right and so they're no longer to hear and understand what the lord is trying to warn them that's coming um and uh, i think that transitions us into verse 9 and 10 um um, and this is kind of this theme is also repeated throughout uh, 28 and 29 where um you just see the hardness of sin, um, just keep keeping people from understanding and seeing the truth. It, it blinds and hardens our, hardens our heart. Right. There's just this, this mocking of God's word, right? God's divine word through the prophets, right, is this knowledge, this message, and you know, we see in verse 10, for it's, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Basically, right, this can be interpreted as blah, blah, blah. Right. right? They're like, here, oh, here comes Isaiah again with his word telling us about, oh, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. We got to do that here. You know, uh, geez, here he comes again. Right. They find Isaiah annoying when he's coming and talking. And they're just, yeah, they're mocking God's word and ignoring it. And then right in verse 11, I, I like what, what God through Isaiah says here. He's like, okay, I've, you know, it's like I've sent my prophet here to tell you what's up and you're mocking him saying blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, now I've got some people who you don't know their language. They're going to sound like they're babbling to you and they're going to teach you. 
right? Because with verse 11, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. And so, right, these Assyrians are going to be used to teach the Israelites. But then in verse 12, right, is, is this, this offering by God, right? Because he always speaks a word of warning followed by a word of judgment. And here's his, his warning, right? Because God says in verse 12, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. So God is saying, listen, you can find rest with me. You can find peace. And right, the, these people of the northern kingdom are simply not listening. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're scoffing at it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know if you noticed this, uh, Ben. It it took I read it a couple times before I saw it in verse 13. And it says, And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept precept upon precept etc right so like before in verse 10 the people are going okay none of this makes sense blah 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 here here isaiah goes again right but here in verse 13 it, it seems to say that you know the word of the lord will now be gibberish right god is now concealing his word to them right very similar to what he'll do also in chapter 29 with judah or it, it reminds me of like jesus when he speaks in parables right the, you know because he's like the purpose of this was to so that people wouldn't understand they re they reject me when i'm talking plain to them so now i'm going to talk to them in parables and it seems that this is the same thing in, in verse 13 that God is like, okay, you've rejected my word. You've mocked it. You've scoffed at it. Now uh, I'm going to hide the truth from you. It's just a, it's just a clear evidence of their condemnation. Um, and, uh, and how hard our sinful hearts can be. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I, I did not see that. But it's a uh, yeah right. It's a good, it's a good uh, warning, I guess from from the Lord for for us, right? We hear the word of the Lord while it can still be heard. Come to Him while there's while there's still time and 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 there's understanding. So we now have, starting in verse fourteen. We have talk of the cornerstone, right? So God says, you know, again, to the scoffers and also to the people in Jerusalem now, right? Um, these folks, right, it says in verse 15, you've made a covenant with death and with Sheol. You know, uh, we have an agreement and... I was, you know, looking at this for a while and right. And, and basically, right, Ben, if, if you choose to trust in anything other than God, it's like making a pact with with death itself. Right. You are uh, 
because that stuff is is going to condemn you. At least that was my first uh, thing as I was looking at it. But but also, right, if you look at verse 15, it says, When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. We've made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. And there seems to be kind of this idea like, okay, I've been using some clever scheming, some lies, some political intrigue or, or whatever. Um, but I have this covenant with death. Because what happens if you have an agreement with somebody or an alliance with somebody? Well, they're not going to get you, right? They're not going to attack you. So it seems to be this, these people are also thinking, well, I've made this covenant with death. Therefore, death is not going to come to me. It's not going to take me out. Now, of course, these people aren't actually like if you were asked, did you make a covenant with death? They're not going to say, yes, I did that, you know, uh, but. Their actions are, you know, they might as well have said something like this. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's, it, it reveals the true nature of the effects of their sin, right? Like you said, it's not an actual covenant where they said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making this agreement with death, but, but by choosing to do what they desire, choosing to oppose God's commands and warnings. Um, choosing to pursue sin as their fulfill, fulfillment of happiness and where they put their hope. Um, and ultimately what it is, is it's, it's, uh, it's trusting in their own works, their own cleverness for salvation, trusting in themselves for salvation. Um, and so what God is doing here, he's clearly distinguishing between salvation by him and salvation by everything else. And the salvation by him, by everything else, is essentially a covenant with death. Um, and, and then we'll see later on in this chapter what that actually means. Right. So verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, All right, a tested stone. And this is basically God's proclamation of here's your salvation, you know, right? Here's, here's the Christ. This is the foundation that you need to build your shelter on, not these lies or this falsehood, not on anything else, right? Jesus is the sure foundation of, uh, of salvation from judgment. Um, and as we've seen, right, First uh, Peter 2, uh, Ephesians 2.20, right? The, there's plenty of places in the New Testament that reference this passage, to show, you know, at referring to Jesus, uh, the Messiah, as uh, the cornerstone. But I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts, Ben, and, and your kind of explanation. What does it mean to have Jesus be called, you know, this uh, attested stone and a precious uh, cornerstone? Well, I, I, I think the, you know, the initial, my initial thoughts go to what the... Um, you know, what is the stone, a tested stone? What is a cornerstone? And, and, uh, you know, cornerstone is the, is the, is the main stone or for foundation in a, in a, um, a masonry building or structure that all the other building, all the other stones and the rest of the structure is aligned off of. Um, and so what God is alluding to here is, is that, 
behold, I'm, you know, you have trusted in salvation by your own works, by, um, by your own strength, which is weak, but I'm giving you salvation that you can align your whole life off of. Um, and that's, it's going to be the true one. It's a tested one. Um, and then, you know, it says at the end of verse 16, it says, whoever believes will not be in haste, um, which is a, you know, just a great assurance uh, of our salvation and what it promises us. Good. Yeah. Um, and I think, and there's other places, right? Uh, like in Isaiah itself, Isaiah eight fourteen, when talking about the Messiah, uh, you know, Isaiah refers to this Messiah as a stone, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So there's plenty of places right in the in the Bible where God is talked of as as a stone. So this is you, we could say is a Trinity alert <laughs> because we have this Messiah. This stone is is the Messiah, and he's also God. And there's right as you pointed out, Ben. There's this big contrast between this foundation found in Jesus and Judah's weak shelter, right? Which leads to them also to be in haste, right? The the vast, last part of verse 16, whoever believes will not be in haste, which harkens back to verse 12 of 28, right? Where God is like, I offer you rest. I offer you peace. Um, there is a sure salvation here. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is this salvation comes in the middle of just, you know, um, you know, God plainly pointed out just the uh, just the incredible uh, unholiness and just evil of their sin. Right. Um, God doesn't just leave them to be judged and, and thrown away by Syria as it comes to invade, but he's offering um, peace and hope. Um, as a gift, right? So it's a, it's a display of his grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the beauty of, of these chapters in Isaiah. The salvation, God's salvation is just on full display in every verse. And, and then in verse 17, the Lord says, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, right? So how this uh, building uh, with Jesus as the foundation is going to be measured out, right? There's there's righteousness and justice, right? Salvation is founded in God's, and He's going to sweep away the refuge of lies, right? Overwhelm the shelter that uh, everyone puts up, and you know the question then is, well, who can measure up, right? Who is perfectly righteous to meet the requirements of this? building that God is is making and of course the answer is Jesus himself who fulfills the law perfectly and then you know by grace gives us his righteousness to or to those of us who uh, trust in him as our savior and who have 
you know, repented. Yes. And yeah, there's just this amazing reference to, to God's grace hidden here in, in verse 17. Yeah. And the, the justice and the righteousness are, uh, are the things which that the Israel kingdom could not obtain. In fact, they were, you know, they, they ignored justice. Um, and, and, and couldn't, couldn't obviously get there, get the righteousness by their own strength. Um, and it's the same, same thing with us as well. You know, we, we can only find true justice from God. Um, and, and our righteousness is only found in Christ. Like you said, that's good. Mm-hmm. And then we have really verses 18 through 22 right, is now a reference to the destruction, the judgment that will fall upon the people of Judah who have rejected this stone and and this salvation, this, um, you know, the foundation that is uh, Jesus, right? There's the covenant with death is going to be annulled and referencing back to, uh, you know, verse 15, Basically saying, well, death now is not bound by this covenant. It can come and take you out now, right? It's It will reign over uh, Judah. And then the last part of verse 18, talking about how you're going to be beaten down by this overwhelming scourge, right? Seems to, to reference an army. Uh, so again, you're going to have the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. Um, and their armies are going to be the tool of God's judgment. Yes, that he's in control of. Um, and uh, I, I, I find it interesting in Isaiah when it's often talking about judgment coming like down in verse 22, God is often described as the, the Lord of armies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the one that is ultimately in control and in power of, uh, of bringing this destruction. Uh, let's see. So verses 19 through 22 again are just, or really 19 through 21 are just descriptions again of the judgment. I think one thing I found interesting was in verse 21, it said, there's the phrase strange is his deed and to work his work, you know, alien is his work. So basically saying God finds it strange that he should have to punish his chosen people. I thought that was interesting and, and, and mm. kind of, you know, uh, convicting because even we who are in Christ, we are part of God's kingdom. Now we, you know, still uh, suffer discipline as, as God removes idols and things. And, uh, and again, it's just this, I guess, declaration that that should not be, right? If we're his chosen, he should not have to punish us for not acting the way, you know, or for acting the way that we're acting. Yeah, that that, that is a, I, I didn't see that, but that is interesting um, and very convicting. Um But verse 22, right, we kind of have our conclusion, right? Now, therefore, do not scoff. 
right? That's that's what you need to do. You need to hear. Don't scoff at God's word. Listen to it. Otherwise, your bonds will be made strong, which is right. The the methods of deliverance, like the alliance with Egypt and, and things that uh, Judah has made, the idols, the false hopes, all these things are just going to become tighter and stronger and will cause Judah to perish. So don't, you know, you need to listen to God's word and not mock it or scoff it or your idols will crush you. Yes, don't don't resist the Lord of hosts. Not a good idea. So then in verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. So this, right, these following verses are verses that we need to hear and and, and take in, right? And in light of the other stuff before this, where Isaiah is like, don't scoff. You're always scoffing. You need to listen. So here's some verses, right? Which, of course, I think an average reader, including myself, when I first read it, I'm like, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> right? There's a there's advice here on farming, right? The okay, so scatter some dill, sow some cumin. What does this have to do with anything? Um, but right, it seems or it says here, or basically is saying you know farmers, they have to have good timing, right? Uh, so God also has good timing for His grace and His judgment, right? He is going to offer judgment when he deems it important to offer judgment and grace when he's like, okay, it is time to show grace. And both are necessary, right, for the redemption of his people. If God is going to redeem his people, there has to be judgment on the evildoers and there has to be grace on his people as well as judgment on his people to, to remove their idols and everything. Uh, and ultimately, right, this brings about the glory of his name. But God knows exactly when to discipline and when to restore his people, how much discipline he needs to use, right, so as not to overwhelm us. And basically, we, just, we need to learn his ways and, and, and trust in him and his, uh, his timing. Yes, and, and tr- true wisdom here comes from the Lord and not mm-hmm. man, right? Um, um that's interesting with this timing. I, I didn't I didn't see that in here on this. Of course, these these several verses, especially 27 and 28, are um, a little bit harder to understand with what they're actually referencing. Um, uh, but no, that was good. His timing. Um, and God is the one also with these the, the farmers that uh, they give them the wisdom on how to do these things. Right. So these are very probably right. pretty easily things that are easily done, you know, um, or just common, common knowledge, right? But all that common knowledge comes from the Lord, um, um, because He's ultimately in control of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like, yeah, the last verse, verse twenty nine. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom, and it it just reminds me of Romans, Romans eleven uh, thirty three. When Paul is right, reflecting on God's grace and, you know, just kind of 
bursts out, right, and in, in almost into song and into declaration, right? He, he kind of, and he says pretty much the same thing that Isaiah is saying here. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, so, right, both Isaiah here and then Paul in Romans both reflect on the judgment and the grace of God and how it all works perfectly together to bring about the redemption of, uh, of his, of his people, of his kingdom. So that now brings us to chapter 29, uh, which right has been pointed out has to do with Jerusalem and the Southern kingdom, right? 28 mostly focused on the Northern kingdom and Samaria. Now we're going to look at the Southern kingdom of Judah and the, the capital of Jerusalem. So um, the first four verses are talk of judgment on Jerusalem I don't have it written down where I saw this, but I do have it written down that Ariel means Lion of God, uh, which was a name given to Jerusalem. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I'm not sure where I got the information. I wrote this part down a long time ago. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Ben. But no, that's I think it's I a about. reference to 2 Samuel 23.30. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's the line of God, um, 2320. Um, and, uh, I'll have to look that up and see, but, um, but yeah, I think you're right there. It's, it's okay. referring to either Jerusalem directly or a, uh, a place like right outside of Jerusalem where David camped, but Either way, the, the, the context is, is that, you know, the main city of God, the, you know, the, the capital, the, the place where the, the temple is, is, is going to be, you know, under siege from another nation here soon. Mm -hmm. There's this reference right in verse one also, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Like religion is performed here in Jerusalem, but it's purely out of habit. Right. Every year they do their feasts, they do their sacrifices, they do everything that the, you know, they're told to do. But it's for tradition's sake. There's no heart in it. Um, it's all pure habit and tradition. And that's, you know, part of why they're going to uh, face this judgment. Which. Right in verse three we have talk about, you know, encampment and besieging and siege works. And we know the Assyrians will besiege Jerusalem, but right. The, the way it's worded here, it's, it's as if God himself is attacking his people. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting imagery there. Um, but, uh, but that's pretty common throughout Isaiah, right? Um, cause when, when we sin, we sin directly against the Lord. Um, and it's the Lord who's directly bringing judgment, right. um, and, and brokenness in our lives in order to heal us. 
Right, right. And then verse four, right, you'll be brought low from the dust. Your speech will be bowed down. Your voice will come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. Um, right, these people are no longer uh, mocking. They're no longer arrogant, right? They are going to be uh, humiliated. But then verse five and six talks about deliverance, right? The multitude of your foreign foes will be like a small dust, a passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts, right? So God is going to deliver them, um, and it's going to be quickly, right? Uh, and the multitude of nations that fight against Ariel will, in verse 7 shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And right, we know that Assyria and its, its army was not just the people of Assyria, but the nations that Assyria had conquered as well comprised a lot of their army. And if this is referring to the Assyrian siege, then it makes sense. Because we see in later on in, in Isaiah, but then also right in like Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Jerusalem gets besieged by Assyria, and then the angel of God appears one night and wipes out almost the entire Assyrian army. And you know, it seems if if this prophecy is in fact about Assyria, that you know, that's that must be what this is referencing. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's also interesting, too, that when the Lord brings um, kind of rescue here, he does it on his own initiative, right? There's nothing in here that right uh, that that shows that the people did anything to deserve it, right? But it's, God, it's only by God's grace that he comes in. Um, what's What makes it even cooler is that, you know, this is like you like you said, this is a prophecy. So God is saying, hey, this Isaiah is saying this is going to happen. Judgment's coming. But in the midst of that, suddenly it's going to be taken away. Um, that's just really neat. Mm -hmm. But then you'd think, right, that then the people would repent and they would have faith in God because of his deliverance from the Assyrians. But verse nine and ten say, no, no, they're not right. There it says, be drunk, but not with wine, stagger, but not with strong drink. Uh, Jerusalem, right, is just out of touch. They're, they're out of touch with reality as if they are drunk, right? Uh, they are still, they still don't see. They're still ignorant of the truth. And yeah, God's deliverance has didn't result in um, faith and, and repentance. Uh, unfortunately. And then again, verse 11 and 12 are, are, I mean, just sad verses. I mean, again, these are the people of God that were meant to be a nation of priests that would show the light of God to the rest of the world. But 
everything that's going on around him at this point, including God's deliverance, is like the words of a book that is sealed. And so, you know, whether you know much or little about spiritual blind things, right? If God decides to blind you, you won't see. And that's what's happening here. It's like, well, why? And and you might say, well, well, why? Why is God doing this? Well, I think the answer is in verse 13. Right? It says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And this is something, you know, that we see in the American church, right? Uh, throughout and just the people who sing his praises, but they don't obey him. Right. They don't love him. It's all show and tradition. Right. I was taught to go to church on Sundays. Right. I was taught to tithe all these externals. Right. OK, it's tradition. I need to do that. You know, it's what my parents did. And and same thing is happening uh, or, or happened with uh, Judah. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's, it's absolutely true. And um, this verse 13, you know, just going in line with what you're saying, it's Jesus references it in Mark and probably in Matthew too, but I know for sure in Mark chapter seven, when he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, right? And uh, when, you know, it's those, those passages in the gospels are probably a little bit easier to initially relate to because you read them and you're like, man, how can these guys be so blind to, uh, to what Jesus is doing. He's doing all these miracles. He's speaking all this truth, right? But they just have this hate poured up in their heart. Um, and uh, and God is blinding them. And that's the same thing here with, uh, um, with Judah. Um, God has blinded them um, because their hearts are, are far from him. And it, it is a stark warning to us, especially in the American church, like you said, um, because we can so easily be allured by by our wealth and comfort um, and going to church and forget the things of God, the things that God has heart for. And, uh, and kind of like you said earlier, when we were talking about in, in 28, you know, we've, we've got to be on guard against our own sin and pride in our own hearts or, or we might be blinded to the things of God and God's blindness is to, to, to men is always meant to draw them back. Right. Because, because because when they're blinded to the wisdom of God, you know, there's consequences to to doing sin and and those mm -hmm. consequences are always painful, but they're meant to draw us back to God. So God doesn't, you know, he doesn't blind without the intention of healing. Um, but regardless, it is a, it is a warning, a stark warning to us um, that we need to examine our hearts and make sure that uh, um, that we are worshiping and loving God. Um um, for his glory and not our own glory. Mm -hmm. Right. God, you know, almost like a surgeon, right? He hurts in order to heal his, his people. And right. Verse 14, 
there's right god yeah is is going to do this wonderful thing right uh wonder upon wonder right this um these astonishing work of discipline that will bring about a healing in Judah and in uh, the people of God, right? He's going to confound the wisdom, right? The wisdom of their wise men. So the leaders, the experts, the talking heads, right? If they had a TV news uh, back then, right? This wisdom shall perish, so just this confidence in human wisdom, right? It's going to be found uh, to be foolish. And then in verse 15 and 16, it, oh, this is, this is, right, uh, convicting, right? A couple of very uh, convicting verses. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and actually just read the two verses. It says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should, that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding, right? Just this, the foolishness of when we try to save ourselves, Right. Or we try to be sovereign over our own life rather than submitting to God. Right. In in society, certainly there's this idea, right, that we don't need God. Uh, we can take care of things ourselves or I can find value in this. And and our own hearts are uh, prone to act that way or think that way. But when we do that, right, it's a, you turn things upside down. We are we're trying to overturn reality. Right. There's just this great uh, perversion. Um, and of course, I love the, the potter and clay uh, imagery. It's, it, you know, it's used in other books of the Bible as well, uh, just to show, right, how we are just this elemental um, can't do anything on our own. We're clay how can we actually then turn to the maker and say, you didn't make us <laughs> this. And this is what we're going to do. Yeah. It's a, it's a man's folly. Right. And, uh, um, these passages are convicting kind of like what you're saying is because they're, it's a simple, but profound truth, but yet our hearts are so easily blinded by it. Mm -hmm. but now how awesome then in response to 15 and 16 you have 17 through 21 all right because it says verse 17 talks about how lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest all right lebanon is is kind of mountainous and wilderness so it's a dramatic change. It's as if, right, the people, we're going, hey, we're going to overturn reality, turn things upside down and do this. And God is like, well, yeah, there is going to be a reversal, but it is not what you think it is. 
uh, reality is going to be overturned, but it's going to be on my terms. And you have right verse 18 and that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. Uh, the eyes shall see the meek shall obtain fresh joy. The poor among mankind shall exalt, right? Just God is going to change things and make all things new by reaching out to the poor in spirit. Right. Uh, the people who are humbled, they will see God. They will rejoice. And in the meantime, right, verses 20 and 21 talk about how the pride, the proud, the proud people, the prideful, the arrogant, the people who are on top, they're actually going to be thrown out of the kingdom. Right. The, the proud are out and the humble are in. It's a yeah, it's a it's a great picture and and i can't i was trying to remember what uh verse it talks about the humble in the new testament the humble will be exalted the pride will the pride will be um laid low um but yeah it's a great i love that picture of lebanon right i didn't i didn't know lebanon was a hilly place and now it's gonna it says in 17 will be turned into a fruitful field and that just kind of sets up the imagery for the reversal of roles all of a sudden there's injustice and now there's going to be justice um unrighteousness and now there'll be righteousness it's a cool picture mm -hmm. and so that brings us to the last few verses um jacob shall no more be ashamed no more shall his face grow pale for when he sees his children the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Basically, right, that Jacob is going to see his offspring. And, and I believe this is talking about Jacob himself, right? The, the, the forefather of the Israelite nation. He, he's going to see his offspring receive grace, receive redemption, and he's going to be joyful about it and and then verse 24 and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur right these these mockers these scoffers will accept instruction and it's i think it's important right to remember and i I think I said this like in the very first episode of this podcast, but um, R.C. Sproul uh, once said, like, when you're reading the Bible, I'm paraphrasing, but basically when you're reading the Bible and you come across somebody who's a complete idiot and sinner, uh, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> you got So keep that in mind. So it, if we apply that to verse 24, we, I am the one who goes astray in spirit and I murmur. I'm the one going blah, blah, blah when I'm reading the Bible. And, and if I'm going to be honest with myself, you know, that's true, right? We, there's plenty of places where we come across the Bible where I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I think I'm just going to ignore it or, you know, or like, oh, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that part of the Bible. I think I'm, you know, and instead of wrestling with it, praying about it, looking into it, I ignore it. I, you know, I, I avoid 
talking or thinking about this portion of the Bible. And that, of course, causes me to stray uh, in, in spirit. And But the fortunate thing, you know, for us who are in Christ, we are going to come to understanding and we will accept instruction, uh, even if God has to force it on us. Yeah, by his grace, right? Well, we have now concluded uh, chapter 29. So, Ben, you're the guest. You get to go first. <laughs> what is some application that we can take from uh, these two chapters as we wrap it up here? Um, well, I think, like you said, you, you mentioned earlier, God is the great physician who, who heals um, who, who breaks and heals. Right. And so that's, that's what we see here is uh, brokenness coming um, from God because of the, dis- the destruction and judgment that's coming upon both of these nations. Um, but in the end, God heals and he heals by his grace. Um, and, and in it, you know, God is revealing the depths and the depravity of the nation's sin. And for us, you know, until we understand the depths of our own sin and our own depravity, you know, we can't clearly see the gracious gift of salvation God has given us. And so that's why God gives us such clear contrast in both of these chapters. Um, God's salvation, his plan of redemption and Israel and Judah's sin. Um, And, you know, just goes to great lengths to describe how bad that sin actually is. Um, and, and it's meant to drive us to our knees. Um, you know, our, our, our response to the knowledge of God's judgment and salvation, it should be worship. Uh, you know, we should be driven to our knees in humility, um, and, and confess our dependence on, on him. Um, but then also comforted at the same time, right. Of God's, you know, his unmeasurable compassion and love for his people. And, and he, even if our sin is so great and so bad, God's love is greater. Um, and, uh, and his grace is, and his, his grace is mightier and, you know, his strength is, uh, is unmatched. And so he can draw us into salvation, no matter how mm-hmm. bad our sin is, right. No matter how prideful we are. It's mm-hmm. great news. And the more, and the more we reflect on that, the more we understand it, the less we'll be like the people who, you know, honor God with, with their lips, mm. but their hearts are far from him. Absolutely. Especially, again, like verses 15 and 16, right? Powerful imagery to show the foolishness and the complete idiocy of our sin and rebellion against God. Right. We yeah, as, as you said, we need to understand how perverted our thinking is, which then leads us to right be grateful for how uh gracious God is. But I think uh also right, it's important looking back on chapter twenty-eight and the section about the cornerstone right it, it's something we always need to constantly be searching our hearts and 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 thinking about right um just who are you hoping will get you through 
the, the, the calamities that you're going to face in this life, right? Who is your hope in? And, and even if you say Jesus, I guarantee you it's not 100% Jesus, right? <laughs> because we're not, because we're not in heaven yet. Uh, we haven't been glorified. We're still being sanctified. We still have idols. There's something in our hearts that displaces God uh, that we love more than God. And if that if we don't address those idols, yeah, we will be put to shame, right? We will be in haste. We will not experience the rest that God offers. Um, so I think it's very important that we search our hearts. What is the shelter that we are throwing up? Uh, and, and not, you know, instead of using the cornerstone, which is Jesus and, and salvation in Jesus. Well, that that uh, concludes it for this evening. Uh, hope uh, y'all enjoyed the the talk and, and, and got something out of it. Uh, we'll be back next week getting into chapter 30. We are almost halfway done with Isaiah. Uh, we'll get there eventually. But uh, some more good stuff, some more woes, some more judgment, you know. Uh, next week. But again, uh, this is George Cagle joined by Ben Grimmy this evening with Redeemer Radical Reflections from Reading Rightly. Or if that's too hard to say, you can just call us the five R's. <laughs>